If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn those to the 8th chapter of the book of Hebrews. We are continuing through this book. We walk through it each week. Uh, And Hebrews chapter 8 is unique because, honestly, very much like last week, you begin to read it and you realize that if you've not read the chapter before, you're missing a, a portion. So... The, the breakdown of it is a little tricky. So we're going to pick up in actually 7 verse 26, which is right above that large 8 in your Bible. And we're going to read through the end of chapter 8 verse 13. So if you've got that, go there with me. If you don't, well, listen up. So here we go. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sins sinners and exalted above the heavens he has no need like those other high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests but the word of the oath which comes later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever now the point to what I'm saying is this, that we, are, that we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it's necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if we... If he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises for if that first covenant had been faultless there would have been no occasion to look for a second for if he finds for he finds fault with them when he says from Jeremiah behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will establish a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them to the hand took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt for they did not continue in my covenant and so I showed no concern for them declares the Lord for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one and they shall not teach each one his own neighbor and each one his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Last Monday night, we came to the conclusion of the college basketball tournament. The what is historically called NCAA March Madness. And as Texans, we know that a... 
team from the state that we live in played in that tournament. I don't know if you're a Texas Tech fan or not, but if you were to watch the game, you saw it come down to these two leviathans of college basketball, Virginia and Texas Tech. That's a joke. And they played one another. Now, what happens during March Madness is you have brackets that keep popping up, and as the brackets pop up, they uh, and these brackets aren't college basketball. They're just building off of the frenzy that comes with that. Some of those are brackets that tell you what the best gif or meme ever is. Others of these brackets are eliminations where you will eventually get down to the greatest episode of The Office. We have these brackets that run, these themes that run throughout. And I was thinking today as to what it meant to look and see who is the greatest detective in history. And if we were to post up brackets, there would not be that many, but what we would eventually come down to in the grand championship of greatest detectives in the history of detectives would be a match between Batman and Sherlock Holmes. That's what it would come down to. And it would come down to the fact that these two people, if you were to watch any of their movies or read any of the books about them, as you're going through the story, you notice certain themes throughout. And these themes are ultimately revealed to us at the end. You see these little shadows, these little echoes, as you read through a detective novel, or as you watch through a detective movie, or as you watch Sherlock on the British Broadcasting Channel starring Benedict Cumberbatch, you have these little small snippets that will eventually be revealed at the end. When we get to the book of Hebrews, when, as, as we work through it, we've noticed that the Jewish people had laws and regulations and rules, and the writer of the book is saying to them over and over, everything that was there was intended to reveal what we will find at the end in the person in, in Jesus. So as we've worked through these first seven chapters, we have to work through them to understand what's going to take place today because God has been doing a work through this writing to say to those who would receive this word today, those who receive this word that this writer wrote to or this speaker spoke to, saying to them, you have to grasp this to some extent that all of your things that took place before now find their culmination and their fulfillment in the person of Jesus. And when we look at this passage, it's showing us a little bit more as to who this Jesus is. So when we get to verses 8, chapter 8 rather, verses 1 through 5, we see that this covenant is declared to us in the person of Christ. Now we have an understanding of covenant that is unique. Our understanding of covenant is the idea of a legal contract. You go to buy your house, you've entered into a contract, you're buying and you're selling, and there's an exchange that takes place, and there are certain people who will receive money, and certain people who will not receive money, and certain people who receive the most money. That's what happens there. Uh, We also have the idea that comes to our mind when we consider a covenant as to what would take place when we get married. Two people stand before God and everybody. They begin to exchange their vows. And when we are exchanging these vows, what we find is we're offering. We're saying that we're going to do this, and this person's going to do that. And there's this exchange 
change that's there. This is what we see in the Old Testament. If you're to look in the Old Testament, chapter 24 of the book of Exodus, you see a picture of covenant very much like what I've just explained to you. I'll bring this to the table, you bring that to the table, we'll have a full table, and we will enjoy the table. That's what's there. That's not the type of covenant that we see in Hebrews chapter 8. That's not the covenant that we see that has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus. That's not the covenant at all that we are part of as New Testament Christians. As those who walk with the person of Jesus, our covenant does not work like that because our covenant is declared in the person of Jesus Fully, the word that, if you were to, as you read through 8, 1 through 5, the idea of the covenant in those verses, the notion that is raised by the writer, is not us saying to Jesus, Jesus, you bring your part of this, and I'll bring my part of this, and we'll, we'll figure it out with all the friction that comes with it. This is God saying to us in Jesus, I've given everything... And this is no longer negotiable. It's not so much the idea of what we use when we use the illustration of a marriage. It is the illustration of a will. That God in Jesus has given to us fully all that we need in him. We don't get to negotiate with that. We don't get to change the principles. There are not certain aspects of being a follower of Jesus that we get to accept and reject. It's the idea of God saying, if you are in me and you have received my new covenant, this promise that I've made to you, this better covenant, then you have been given all that you need for life and godliness And what takes place when we enter in and grasp who Jesus is and we're made part of this new covenant is that it ensures that what God has done for us is not only something that exists, it's been internalized for us. That's some of the words that you use uh, as we read through the passage. We see an internalization of what takes place in this text. Go with me again to verse 1, though. Let's just work through it together. Now, the point in what I'm saying is this, that we have a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven. He sat down, we see. What a unique concept to consider a high priest that sits down. Because in all honesty, this is a very different concept for the Jewish hearer of this passage. Why? Why? Well, we've walked over the last few weeks through what took place with a priest. We've considered all that the priest would do and they would offer up their sacrifices. And we know that it's not just the yearly sacrifice, that's the major one, but from week to week and day to day, they're offering up sacrifices on behalf of the people. The reason that the idea of a high priest sitting down would be so odd to the hearer is that priests don't sit down. They never sit down. They go, they go, they go, they go, they go, they go, they go. And our priest does not do that. Jesus does not stop. As a matter of fact, Jesus says it is finished. The completed work of God on the cross has brought us into the place of this new covenant. Verse 2. He's a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up not man. 
This goat takes us back to what takes place in verse 26 of chapter 7. As we consider what's taking place in that holy place, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Jesus is a priest who lives forever. And as we talked about last week, he is a priest forever who is continually interceding for us on behalf of God forever. And when Jesus is... When our attention in this text is directed to the person of Jesus, we are called to consider that the old priests and the old religion that these people were so united to that it was dead. And their faith was no longer about this old priest. Now, we have an idea as to how that works. It's not quite a perfect representation. But if you've ever been in church, and there are lots of us in this room who have been churched on top of church forever. And we have had conversations when things would take place. Maybe at your early church when you were a child and you could remember standing around talking to the deacons as they're about to hand to you stale butterscotch. Or maybe you were standing outside where the deacons were smoking. And you're in... When, did that happen? Just my church? Just my church. <laughs> and as you're listening to the conversations, there's a new pastor. He's been there for three months. And everyone uh, isn't sure as to what to do with new pastor. They think they like the pastor, but they begin to reminisce about the pastor who was before them. They begin to think about how much they liked Pastor Jim that was the pastor before they ever got there. But Pastor Jim was gone. He's moved on. These, the religiousness of what took place with these Hellenistic Jews was very similar. They had priests that they would tie their faith to. And when that priest would go, there's the idea that they would be disconnected from what's taking place from that point forward. And the idea that we're wrestling with here as we go through the book of Hebrews, these Jewish people consider what it means to have this new great high priest. The wrestling match that's taking place in their hearts and souls is this. All that we've done before has now been undone. And we're so tied to, and that we're so connected to, and that we were so ritually involved in. Those things are no longer things that we're tied to and connected to and ritually involved in. You're meaning to tell me that this Jesus is... He's... All that I need? He reigns in heaven forever, the passage says. And the text tells us that when we consider who Jesus is, if he were to be a priest who was here on the earth, he would not be the priest that we need. Because the priest that we need is one who sits at the right hand of God, going on behalf of us forever and forever and forever and forever and forever saying to God, these people are mine, these people belong to me, these people have trusted in the sacrifice that I've made. Verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. What did he offer? What did he offer? We just sang a song that Jesus would offer up his all his broken body his shed blood in our place this text shows us that God has declared that there's a new covenant in Jesus not based upon bulls and goats 
but based upon the shed blood of the Son. Now, our religiousness gets us to this place where we try to exchange the, the bulls of the Old Testament for the busyness of our life in 2019. We try to please God by how busy we happen to be for Him. That's an exhausting thing to consider. That we could ever be busy enough to continue to keep God in our good graces. When in actuality, the only reason we know what grace is, is because of Him. We, we keep in the text and we see this, that Jesus has done some unique things. Verse 5, what God has offered us in Jesus, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, seeing that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So what the Jewish people and their understanding of the temple that they call the tabernacle, what that was, Moses goes in, Moses sees something, and he is told to replicate that. Now, if we're to read through the Old Testament in the books of the law, these decrees that are there, you will see that Moses being told, this is what should be there, this is how it should be, this is how long it should be, this is how high it should be, this is what the outer court should look like, this is what the inner court should look like, this is what the Holy of Holies should look like, this is how it should all be. But, as magnificent as that is, and we could possibly rebuild that I know you could engineers I mean you're waiting for me to tell you to saw something at any moment we could rebuild this but it wouldn't be what it's really showing us heaven is it wouldn't be what we're really seeing in scripture as to who God is it's, it's a replica it's a copy. It's a shadow. So I was born in 1977. Any 70s kids in the room? All right. We're not kids. We're, we're middle-aged now. I, I've actually had to work through some of that this morning. That was neat. Uh, I remember when my friends would have video game systems. Uh, but before there were video game systems, there was something else. I'm a big football fan. I, I think football's great. My, my kids love football. My wife walks into the living room the other day they're playing a video game she said that looks like I thought that was real people they were playing basketball but you see the same thing with football games that looks like real people if you ever watched your kid play a video game and thought something similar that looks real well that's not how it's always been as a matter of fact, in the 1970s, but before there were video game consoles, we had this electric football machine. Anybody remember electric football? It looked like this. Who had this in the room? Just hands up in the room. Did we have this? All right, I see you back there, Eddie. So if you don't know how this table works, you turn it on and it rattles. And as it rattles, these little people on the field, they rattle towards one another. There's a ball in there somewhere, but we all know what took any of my 70s friends know. The ball, you lose. So you have to replace it with a paper wad. Like that, that you would, all right? So, and they would rattle towards one another, and you don't even do anything. You've just got the team that you cheer for, and as you cheer for them, you're hoping that your player with the ball gets in the end zone. Now, if this were all that you had to play with, and you had no idea as to what the real football is, or even what some of the video games today can do, man, that would be awesome. Look at this thing. 
this is so cool. Look at these people buzzing towards one another. Look at them just shaking up and down the field. It's as if we had put them in a mixer. And if I tried to hand this to my boys, it got better in the 80s. There's another game that came along. Uh, this was John Madden football. Can't you see how realistic that was? 1988. Just a replication of what actually takes place when the Dallas Cowboys and the Houston Texans take the field. The Houston Texans weren't even around when this game was made. It doesn't function. There aren't enough players on there. One team has 14, the other has 6. But in 1988, I loved this. The people... And with all that had been revealed to them, all of the tabernacle, man, this is amazing. This is miraculous. This is fantastic. I love everything about this. But I don't want to play this anymore. I don't want to play the other anymore. I can't keep up with the pieces to that. Because now I've got something better. What the writer of Hebrews is saying about this Jesus that we have when we consider all of the ways that we access God and, and, and all that they've been given the, with the tabernacle, with all of its beauty and all of its glory, they're still just trying to keep up with paper wads and play games that really don't have a rhythm to them. It's a replication. It's not the real thing. How good is it that God's given us the real thing when he gave us Jesus? We've access to God himself. And all of the laws that they were keeping, and all of the things that, that we read in the first five books, and in the Torah in general, in the Torah and in the Old Testament in general, Those are intended to prepare us for what God will offer in His Son, the promise and the covenant of a relationship with Jesus that means so much more, that is able to do for us so much more. I mean, just think about this, though. You don't have to have your Bible. You don't have to be religious to see faultiness with what we are as a people. Am I right? You can watch the news... You can look at your social media feed. If you ever need to realize how terrible of human beings we are, look at your social media. I really believe that we should have to pay for that stuff. It would keep some people off. But when we... <laughs> just my opinion. But when we take the religiousness out of it, how many of us in our 40s look at back at our 30s and we live in this land that we should have, we would have, we could have if we did... How many of us in our 30s look at our 20s and say the same thing? How many of us in our 50s look at our 40s and our 60s look at our 50s? How many of us look at the life that we've already lived and see all the gaps and all the mistakes that we made and we say, I wish, I should, I could, why didn't I? 
We live in our failures and our mistakes and our shortcomings. And what that shows us when we look back is that every one of us, as hard as we try and as much as we attempt to live by law, we are people who are lacking in love and mercy and goodness. We lack in grace. We lack in mercy and goodness and grace and there will never be a point where we say, man, I nailed it when I was 42. I killed it when I was 47. There will always be these gaps because our hearts are bent so that we, we don't see the value in God being the fulfillment of all these things. God is saying to us in Jesus, all that you have is showing you what you could not do. We actually see that through the Old Testament. We always think about the Old Testament. We talk about those first five books as the books of the law. And in a sense they are. But they are really a story telling us about how the people were given laws. We read through the first 11 chapters of, of the book of Genesis. And there aren't a whole lot of laws there. There's, you know, you trust me, you trust me, you trust me. Well, they don't trust him. So God gives them more laws. Right? We get to Exodus and we see this. God meets with him on the mountaintop. He gives them laws. When he gets to the bottom, he, he barely steps there. And they're talking about a cow. We, we look and we see that God, Moses has to go back and get more laws. God had given enough law to direct them. However, that law intended to direct was to get them to this place where they would see, Hey, I need something more than this. And all of these laws were never something that God gave where they would say, I've changed myself enough. It was always for them to say, God, I need you to change my heart. I need you to change my heart. I need you to change the way that I see you and change the way that I see the world. And they never got there. And we really don't either, apart from Jesus. We'll never change enough. We'll never do enough. We'll never be enough. What takes place with God in Jesus for us is not him correcting what was wrong. It's him making alive what was dead. It's him putting a new heart in a place that needed one. There are numerous illustrations through the scripture as to what takes place when God gives a new heart. We actually see that as we move towards these last verses of chapter 8 where we're walking through this new covenant. And what we find when we look at this, when we consider what God has done for us in Jesus and how God has done it is, you see this consistent theme of an impure heart being replaced. Not an impure heart being course corrected. When Moses would talk about the heart, he would say that our hearts need to be circumcised. And for the Jewish people who, who understood what the circumcision rules were, they would say, oh, I, God needs to pierce and make new what was there. You actually see that when Ezekiel talked about the heart, he would say that God needs to give us a new heart. We need to have a new heart. That's what the new covenant is, God's new heart for us. When Jeremiah, who we're going to look at here, talks about the heart, he says, I want God to write his laws on my heart. So you see this major shift take place in chapter 8 of Hebrews as to what the writer is doing. It's this shift. It's beautiful because what we see is God for these people. He's saying, Jesus, he's so much more than what you are looking for in the other aspects of your religion. All of the things that you want and all of the things that you seek and all of the things that you're hoping for when you drift back towards being good religious Jews. 
They're provided for you in Him. So you don't need those things because you have Him. You have Him. Let's read through 8 through 13 again, just so we're there together. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no mercy for them, declares the Lord. 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach. They shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more so we see four things taking place as we look to that third point that you have in your sermon God and that the idea of God working in us and through the spirit the Holy Spirit develops our walk with Jesus the first thing that we see is in verse 10 and when we look to verse 10 and 11 we see that our God is permanent He's going to do a permanent work in us. Verse 10. I will put my law into their minds. And I will write them on their heart. The intent of the Old Testament law that led to this was to show Israel how much better their God is. And to show people their sin and their need for God to change their hearts. And what God has done for you as a believer. Is he has done a permanent work of not writing laws on stone tablets or having a prophet write laws on stone tablets. He's written and directed who he is inside of you. We also see that it's not just permanent, it's paternal. Go with me to the next portion of this. I will be their God and they'll be my people. That's a unique transition for these people. Because these, these Jewish people have an idea of God as Father, but not a God as our Father. That possessive pronoun, our, Jesus even foreshadows that when he prays and shows them how to pray. Verse 11. And they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his own brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. We, don't, we see that it's not only permanent and paternal, we see that it's personal. So we're seeing now that as people of faith, we no longer say, you should know God. You, here's what you do to know God. For us as believers, when we have conversation about what God has done for us in Jesus, we get to affirm that with yeses because, yes, God's done this. I know him, and when I talk about him, I'm declaring how good he is. This isn't me trying to climb a ladder to please God. It's me realizing that God has climbed down one to reach me. And it's personal. Jesus, we know him. That's so different from so many religions. No other religion in the world would ever say something to the effect of, I know God. They know about him. 
They have understand. They have some type of understanding as to the concepts of of who their religious prophets are and how their religious prophets are tied to their gods. But no one in any faith system outside of Christianity claims that we know God, and more importantly, that God knows us. God knows you. So everything that we do to hide things from Him, stop. Stop. It it doesn't matter. You're not a good enough hider. I'm not either. He knows me. He knows my heart. He knows the the wickedness inside of it. And he knows that I need to regularly live in light of the fact that I need him. We don't fix ourselves enough. Nobody else claimed to know God personally. We can talk about God now as believers because he's spoken to our hearts. We also see that that if we are being perfected and he's perfecting us. Verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I don't know how much your past sins bother you. But my past sins, they can bother me. I'm not sure how your poor decisions have affected you. But when I live a 2019 distortion of an old covenant faith, my shortcomings can freeze me. And God in this new covenant is saying to us those sins those sins not in part but the whole have been nailed to the cross. You don't have to carry them anymore. Jesus has dealt with them. So everything that is immobilizing your attempts to live for Jesus, most of those will come down to and boil down to you trying to live in a covenant that was not intended for you. Because in Jesus, God has said, I've I've given you everything that you need and everything that you could hope for. And I've, I've not just revealed to you small reflections of who I am I've revealed to you in full who I am so God is saying to us as his people consistently realize that you live in a world where your heart has been changed because Christ is a substance Christ is our hope Christ is all that this passage is is taking us to so let's look to Jesus let's consider Jesus let's think on Jesus today And let's be people who realize this promise that God's made to us is forever. And we don't have to be bound by things that were not intended to bind us. God has forgiven you. God has given you hope and peace and life in this world. Do you want you to bow your heads with me this morning? If you're here and you've never trusted in Christ and the promise that he offers to forgive your sins... I would love to share with you what the Bible teaches us about that. I'll be in the back right-hand corner, my right-hand corner of this room. 
if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus, but you look at your life and you see that you're kind of living an old covenant faith in a new covenant world, where you're immobilized by your past, I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to, you to know that our people are praying for you. That we want you to, to live in the freedom that God has offered us in Jesus. So, so Lord, we trust you this morning. We trust you in your promises. We trust you in your hope. Lord, I pray for our faith family as we prepare to celebrate Easter next Sunday. That we see that the resurrection is something that we celebrate every day. Because you care for us. You've made a covenant to us. God, you've, you've willed to us a relationship with you for those who've trusted you. And let us receive it in full. We ask all this in the name of Jesus.